Wow, what's up, everybody? This is Ari in the Air. Thanks for being here. I am so stoked on the episode today. This conversation I had with Shane Ward is just seriously, it rattled my brain inside of my head. It knocked loose some of the frameworks that I had. And seriously, this conversation has changed some of my perspectives for the better. Shane is a regenerative land use and agriculture, permaculture, ecology expert. He's also just has a brilliant, brilliant hold on the English language and is such a good speaker. He also has such a keen knowledge for psychology and what's going on in our heads and how we understand things and why we haven't fixed all of the fucked up shit yet. He is a serious inspiration. And honestly, in the second half of this podcast, there he dropped some serious bombs on my head that I recorded this at, at night. It was day for him. He's in Australia. And he dropped some bombs on my head that I was seriously, like it, I was taken aback. I was taken aback at some of the things that Shane said in this podcast that are so, so, so insightful. So I know you guys are going to love this. If you like this podcast, if you think that these are the kind of conversations we need to be having right now, then can, then do your part. You got to share it. You got to subscribe. You got to, you got to leave reviews that helps get it out there and consider donating. It's paypal.me slash airy in the air. This is like the new gift economy. This is pirate radio, folks. This is the new media. Support me in spreading this kind of thinking, this kind of conversation, all right? And I know you guys are gonna love this conversation with Shane Ward. So thanks, Shane, for coming on. He's definitely gonna be back on at some point. Like this, is, we, we got more to talk about. But without further ado, here's some music from some fellow Australians and my interview with Shane Ward. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is going to be rad. <laughs> Typically, so, I do my uh, podcast interviews with, uh, you know, I have a big window right here and it's really bright in my bedroom and I do it with uh, coffee, but today it's, uh, <laughs> it's more dark, dark chocolate and red wine 30 here in Bend, Oregon. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that might make for a novel experience. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking for novel experiences. Where are you? So uh, I'm in Melbourne, Australia at the moment. Mm. Uh, so what, it's about uh, just after lunchtime, a uh, bit of a gray day, you know, it's autumn. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I've, I've been here for, I mean, I'm actually, I grew up here in Melbourne, but I um, left many, many years ago and, you know, traveled the world and lived 
in Europe for a long time and uh, then I was based in New Zealand uh, off and on for a while. And in fact, that's where I'm going to be going back to probably at the end of the year. Well, almost definitely. So, um, yeah. So, but here I am for the time being in Melbourne and uh, yeah, that's where I find myself. Cool. You're Australian. So yeah, I'm actually half French, half Australian. Huh, interesting. Um, yeah, so, um, so I, I, yeah, I grew up mostly in Melbourne. My family's mostly French. Uh, I speak French. Uh, I went to school there for a few years, um, spent a bit of time there as an adult. And uh, yeah, but uh, here I am. Cool, man. Awesome. And are you from Oregon? Are you, where are you from? Yeah, I am uh, born... And raised here, my great grandparents actually homesteaded in this area in 1939. Wow, cool. So, um, yeah, it's definitely created, it's made me who I am. There's so many recreational <laughs> opportunities around here that it's just like, it's just one thing after the next. I grew up skiing and climbing and all kinds of stuff. But it's yeah, uh, it's Netflix 30 here in Bend, Oregon. So uh, we can start with video. But if we if we kind of have trouble there technologically, we'll just cancel the video and prioritize our audio. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So, dude, tell me uh, tell me what your job is. Obviously, I found you by watching a great documentary called Living the Change of which I would say your narration and input was the backbone of between you and Charles Eisenstein. Um, Thank you very much. That's very kind. So I really like your prose and the things you had to say. Uh, in particular, one thing that I remember you saying in that was that living unsustainably isn't just inconvenient or less than optimal. Something that is unsustainable is self-terminating by its nature. And that is something that people don't seem to fully understand. And I would consider myself a longtime climate skeptic. And I think I'm a climate skeptic because for so long, the narrative of climate change has been politicized. I am a anarchist and the science has been bought and sold. Exxon proved that you could buy scientists and, and the pharmaceutical industry proved that you could buy science. And then to once the climate conversation became in full swing, I think I was deeply troubled by its political nature. And now I feel like uh, from almost a philosophical level, I have zoomed out enough and through the guidance of the work of Daniel Schmachtenberger, Jordan Hall, these guys who are just kind of, um, you know, I think Schmachtenberger's work in particular has really like kind of captivated the part of me that's, has a soft spot for just the idea that a mile long trolling net out of the back of an industrial fishing super tanker is like just by its nature unsustainable. Like, and that's kind of the picture in myriad industries in our world. So give me your, uh, 
I want to hear your almost your origin story into your current <laughs> <laughs> ideological stance wow. and maybe even what is that? Yeah, well, where to start? I mean, I think I should probably start by responding to, to what you said, first of all, which is, I guess I would say, um, you know, you're always right to be skeptical. Skepticism is healthy if it's kept in moderation, like a lot of things, um, by which I mean, you know, there is a spectrum by which we can start to doubt everything to the point where we become solipsists and say, well, is the only thing in my universe, my own thought, you know, at which point one could argue that starts to get a little bit unproductive. So I think um, you are right. There, there have been some really good examples of, of science, which has been bought and paid for. And, you know, we need to be wary of that. But I, of course, don't for a second think that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, um, the vast majority of scientific inquiry, I think, is is valid. And, you know, we could actually have a whole conversation just about the challenges and problems that have come up, you know, in recent years in terms of you know, the peer review process and, you know, how uh, replicable are certain studies and so on and so on. So but I think when it comes to science, uh, sorry, it comes to climate science in particular, um, I've heard a lot of people, in fact, you know, you only need to go online to any forum and you'll find armchair academics all around the world, you know, engaging in a lot of whataboutism, you know, what about this? What about that? What about, you know, and largely these are people who don't understand the science or don't read it very widely and tend to want to cherry pick things to support their own viewpoint, whether that's ideological, political, you know. Um, so this is a backwards way of telling you the story of my origin story, because in a way where I've come to is uh, something I, somewhere I never thought I would end up. You know, if you had have asked me 10, 15, well, 15, 20 years ago, I, I would never have pictured this, me doing this here today, you know. Um, now I, I actually love reading scientific reports, journal, research, you know, I, and once you kind of get your ear in, as it were, and, and have a bit of experience and understanding the, some of the terminology and the way that these things are structured and, you know, you can, you can usually build up a really good picture of what, you know, what's to be taken seriously, what is it actually saying, what is it building on and all this sort of stuff. So I think, you know, in, in short, uh, the science and climate is, is pretty unequivocal. I mean, it's been torn at, chewed on for quite a long time because it's become such a political hot potato. And in fact, some of that's part of, that's a problem in itself, I think, that it has become so politicized, particularly in the US, but I mean, everywhere to some degree. And it's a shame because, you know, look at where we are now in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic uh, and most leaders around the world anyway are standing aside and saying, I trust the science um, because they're afraid of not doing so. And sadly, we don't quite have that same level of fear and uh, trust in the science when it comes to the long-term future. But for me, I actually, my origin story, I suppose, was growing up in a, we had uh, three and a half acres uh, on the sort of outskirts of the city, um, which was 
uh, in the Australian context, it was bush, it was, you know, gum trees and, and I was uh, running around playing climbing trees and that was, that was what I did. Like that was my leisure activity as a child, you know, until I was you know, basically, in, you know, like a teenager. And that, it turns out, had a very strong influence on me. I lived in a mud brick or what you call adobe house, you know, an earth building. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was just normal to me. Um, my grandfather had actually built one uh, on this site that I grew up in in 1950. And then uh, I helped my mother build another one years later when I was uh, 11 years old. And again, all this was normal to me at the time. But what that did was that when I set off in, you know, into my journey as an adult into discovering who I was and what I wanted to do and understand the world and all this sort of stuff. And I was doing um, film and television. I, I wanted to be a film director. Uh, when I started doing that, you know, I, I started traveling and seeing all these amazing new places and having adventures and, and living uh, overseas and, and wanting to engage in the thriving big city, you know, and, and, find out about the world and all this exciting stuff that was going on. But then over the years, that led me to a kind of a, a realisation that I distanced myself from my my roots, essentially. Mm. I didn't think of it in those terms, but I wondered why I was kind of a bit unsettled mm. and not really happy with what I was doing. And in fact, I can remember the exact moment that it happened. I, um, My girlfriend and I had been, uh, well, I'd been travelling in Mexico. I'd been scuba diving in the cenotes in uh uh, near Tulum, right? Yeah. In, the, in the Yucatan. The, yeah, in the Yucatan, the Riviera Maya. And uh, I ended up on a sort of whim finding this little house uh, and, and I was traveling with my girlfriend. She wasn't with me at the time, but I met up with her in Belize in Brazil and we, I said, hey, I found this you know, house we should buy. It. And she was like, that's crazy, but it didn't cost very much. So we went, yeah, she'd never even seen it. So we bought it. And then we went back to London where we were based at the time. We worked for a few months, saved up, left our jobs and went and, and lived there and, and renovated it. And we were living there in the jungle, uh, really close to a beautiful beach with protected turtle sanctuary. And every day, you know, I was building furniture. We were you know, renovating the house. We were living a really simple life. We had no TV. We just had a guitar. And that experience, I remember one day looking up and looking at the jungle and the wind was blowing through the trees and I was like, wow, I feel energized by this, you know? And I suddenly just had like this kind of moment, almost like a, in, a, in, a, in a movie where there's a little montage and all the pieces click together and, you know, there's flashbacks and all this kind of thing. It was a little bit like that. But I suddenly realized how, you know, that was actually the, the thread. Like that's what I realized that's what really energized me was, was nature and trees. And while my career ambitions and my ambitions personally had been led me in a different direction i realized that the reason i was so unhappy is i was living in a big concrete jungle it was just all brick and concrete and all these things that i was chasing were actually not really they were old dreams i'd sort of outgrown them and i needed to get back to the thing which really gave me energy instead of taking it away and that is what led me through to discovering permaculture through permaculture design through understanding i, I mean i always had a love of nature but i would have called myself an environmentalist in terms of my I don't know, I suppose my politics and my priorities, but it was a general, vague, casual environmentalism. And I, and I guess I really wanted to understand it. And so, so through permaculture and design and all this, you know, led me through agroforestry, soil biology, all these things over the years um, to essentially where I am now. Um, and, and, and to send me back to university because I wanted to really understand, you know, what there was to understand about these systems and, and ensure there wasn't missing anything, you know, knowledge-wise. And where is that now? 
when you say it led you to where you are now, what are you doing? What do you do for a living? So now um, I founded a small company called Action Ecology. And what we do, what I do through this company is essentially um, try to connect people with knowledge. Um, but what that really looks like in a sort of day-to-day sense is it's built around regenerative land use and mm-hmm. soil health. Um, but it works at all kinds of different scales, you know. So I could I could be talking to somebody about their garden, about their homestead, about a, uh, to a farmer looking at a, you know a broad scale um, approach, or you know what I'm trying to do more and more is. Um, look at regional or national level and talk, you know, how can we get this knowledge where it really um, makes a big difference at a big scale, you know, because there are so many amazing people all around the world doing, you know, great work, have amazing knowledge, um, people that I've learned from, you know, and still and still do learn from, you know, uh, and pioneers out there, you know, in America and all, and all around the world who are trialling new innovative things, discovering how we can essentially produce food fiber and, and fuel off the land in a way that can be done forever. Um, and they're showing that it can be done. Uh, and the thing which I realize is that that knowledge, that innovation wasn't known about in the right places because I was dipping into or accessing networks of people, whether this be at a kind of uh, intergovernmental or UN level, you know, think tanks and policy groups at that level, I could see that they, they weren't picking up on this innovation. They were still talking, you know, in a way that showed that they, they didn't realize this stuff was going on. I could see this in all, you know, all around the world. I could see these kinds of things. There were big, important conversations happening. They didn't seem to, in, to my view to have the right people in the room. So I thought, you know, I've got a, a background and a, I guess I suppose I've got the um, what you might call the moxie. You know, I, I'm someone who's not afraid to talk to somebody because of their status, just because they're important, or I, I don't feel that I can't approach them. You know, I, I feel like everybody, you know, is just a person and I've got just as much right as anybody else to put my hand up and ask a question, you know. And that sort of, uh, and maybe that comes from being an independent filmmaker and, and making projects without any budget and you just forced to knock on doors and, and I guess being surprised at sometimes what you can get if you just ask for it the right way, <laughs> you know? Um, but that's kind of the story of my podcast here, buddy. I'm a, I'm a lifelong cold caller, unabashed, <laughs> unabashed yeah, cold caller, you know, and that's what you got to do. But, um, so that's so you know it's a, it's a long way of answering your question. I can give you the, you know the the website blurb, but anyone can go visit there and, and no, read it's that. okay. I I already there's already things I want to fight you over, and I already want to go deeper on a number of things. So tell me, like when you when you refer to this knowledge, like what is permaculture? Give me just an a, uh, an overview of what permaculture is, because honestly, I spent all day today salvaging lumber and building raised beds and am trying to make as many raised beds in my community as I possibly can so that people can grow their food after being inspired by watching the documentary in which I found you, which the whole thing is just so beautifully serendipitous. So tell me what permaculture is. I'm, I am personally very interested in this concept. My girlfriend is just 
pulling her hair out that she lives in an apartment and doesn't have a half acre to turn chickens and eggs and compost and composting toilet and the whole thing. She's about ready to move to the country. But tell me what permaculture is and... Um, like, well, I, I think you yeah. can already say what permaculture is, is addictive. Yeah. <laughs> you are following the classic curve. Yeah, um, perfect. <laughs> so you're not alone. I mean, I think you know, anyone who's been doing permaculture for, for a while or even just for a little bit recognizes that exact story. Um, what it is. Okay. So the simplest way to explain what, what is permaculture is it's a design system for sustainable land use and living. That's... But if you want to unpack that a little bit more, you could say that it's a, it's a, it's a methodology. It's a way of looking at things. It's a way of doing things um, that specifically looks at um, our lives as a family unit or a community unit or whichever unit you want to look at, a homestead, you know. Um, and it looks at the energy flows in and out and it looks at how we can connect things up and we try we we do that because that's what natural systems do there is no such thing as waste in nature the output of one thing is an input for something else and th therein lies the genius and that's where essentially once you recognize that you can see what's wrong with the way that most of the modern you know developed industrial systems that we have in the world why they are broken or why they create so much damage in the world uh, and, and understand, you know, the flip side of that, why natural systems function so well. We have a and bunch of open loops, right? Yeah. Well, that's exactly right. Yeah. So we create waste. We just have all these essential resources, which are not being utilized by anything. So we just call it waste. Um, yeah. So, and, and so that's what that's sort of looking at. Um, the key thing about it though, is that, that permaculture itself is defined by three ethics. So care for people, care for the earth, and the return of surplus to the first two. Some people like to use the term fair share. That's become very common now. I don't like it as much personally, and I don't like to use it because I find it's a bit vague. I feel like it allows people to read a lot into it. I know it's catchier, you know, fair share, earth care, people care, et cetera. Oh, sorry, earth care, people care, fair share. It rhymes. It's nice. It's catchy. But personally, I like the idea of return of surplus to the first two ethics because what it does is it explains very clearly how it's circular, how the, mm. the whole thing goes around and connects things up, which to me is the ethos of permaculture. So that's why I like to use that. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what that is. You know, in terms of what I do, just to clarify, what I do is inspired by permaculture, uh, informed by permaculture, but it's not entirely permaculture. So I, I have a a range of, of different approaches of which permaculture is a, a major one, um, which I draw on because, um, well, I mean, there's lots of reasons for it, but yeah, I mean, I think there's so much great knowledge out there and permaculture does wrap itself very nicely around, you know, a great deal of it. So I think it's a really, really powerful thing for people to learn and to get into. And this is permaculture, like from the outside, it really is like a kind of a way of life. It really like meets your needs. It seems to meet your needs in certain ways that typically you would have to work to pay to have those needs met. But instead you just kind of put in some sweat equity or some different systems or some, uh, some different things. Is this, is permaculture something where we have to actually fall back into some kind of less complex way of living to 
embody? Like, do I have to give up my paragliding to be a permaculturalist? No, in a word. I, I think the, the essence of permaculture, and this is my opinion, uh, the essence of permaculture reminds us that we have a connection, that we came from somewhere, that we are a part of something bigger. I think that's really important. And that's, that's a philosophical statement, but it's also, I think, a very pragmatic one because we are, and this is the thing which I think people forget, you know, the modern world tells us a story that doesn't really include nature. Nature is scenery or it's aesthetics, uh, it's resources, it's all these things, but what it doesn't really do very well is explain to us where we fit into it. Because obviously we do, you know, we are part of it. We came from it in a very literal sense. We evolved, you know, we are part of all these processes. Um, when you start looking at microbiology, the, the human gut microbiome, the skin microbiome, you realize that what we think of as us, we are not consumers. We are actually, you know, only a percentage of what you think of as you is actually you from a DNA or a cellular perspective. The rest of it's microbes, you know, like even 8% of our DNA is, is viral. You know, we, we are part of this dynamic interconnected system. And the problem is that we've kind of forgotten that. And that is what's kicking us in the ass right now. Do you see what I mean? Like, yeah, so what I think is great about permaculture. Yeah. So, so what's great about permaculture is it kind of brings us back. It brings the focus back to begin with to say, look, remember we are part of a living system. It's not an infinite living system. This isn't a Ponzi scheme, right? Everything has inputs and outputs. You know, if you want to look at it that way, everything's connected. We're part of it. We can either be a positive part of it, and be part of something that's regenerative and, and life-giving and, you know, is positive, growth-oriented in the ecological sense, or we can be destructive and that essentially we have a choice. Now, the other thing that I think is really important about that, which maybe doesn't get talked about so much, is that there are many ways to do that, right? And, and when we talk about the social, maybe even the tribal way that permaculture is adopted um there's absolutely nothing wrong with it but you know if you were to stand back and go well what are the what does a permaculture person look like who you know what as a kind of demographic um there is a high representation in a certain type of people you know in in some people yeah, well, that's it, you know, <laughs> hippies or whatever, you know, like, and, and you can, you could say like Silicon Valley might term those as early adopters, mm -hmm. right? And that's great. And there's nothing wrong with it. But the point is, is that I think the power of permaculture is perhaps undervalued because it, it, it can apply much wider than that, socially mm -hmm. speaking, you know, and maybe there is a point at which the adoption of it has been restricted because certain people look at that who don't understand what permaculture is and say, well, I don't really see myself as that. That's not my identity. So it's not for me. So I think that there's a lot of value in unpacking what permaculture is, what it can do, because it's a mindset more than anything else mm -hmm. and how that can be broadened to appeal to, to, to more people because, you know, it shouldn't, it should never become an us and them thing. And I have to say it hasn't happened very often, but I have come across examples of people who have been essentially ostracized because the uh, group of, of permaculture practitioners didn't think that this person sort of 
was their type of person. So they were, you know, pushed away. And I think that, that made me quite angry because I think that's not what permaculture is actually about. That's actually just people being dicks, <laughs> frankly. Yeah. I think there's a lot of good, there's a lot of embodied communities that lose people in droves by them being dicks about their own, you know, even, you know, there's a misidentification that we are not from the earth, that we are some kind of parasite. And there's a, another kind of misidentification that we are permaculturalists in such a way that we can ostracize and be assholes to other people who want to come into the, to the community. I'm really curious. um, Permaculture. I'm, I've been born and raised in rural Oregon and I grew up on a cattle ranch. And so I can, I have a pretty clear idea as, as to how that kind of system could work with some land. But I'm really curious how, like, what we do for those of us living in cities, what does our global population, is our, are we incompatible at our species size with this kind of sustainability? Um, you know, and my previous question of do I have to completely and totally give up my lifestyle to actually live in alignment with the earth and, and nature um, um <laughs> well, it's a lot there's a lot to unpack there um, <laughs> yeah so i think you know the answer <laughs> well, i i first studied permaculture with jeff lawton um and he is famous for um when he's teaching his courses to you know say the answer is always it depends and it's true it's you know, I've, I keep saying that for, you know, years later, I always say that the answer is always, it depends, um, which is actually useful. It's not evasive. It's actually, it forces you to ask, well, what are the yeah. conditions? Know, what am I really asking? Yeah. Um, so do you have to get up your lifestyle? It depends. Uh, if your lifestyle involves a new widescreen TV every 18 months and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all that whole consumption thing, you know, then yeah. But that's not because of permaculture. That's just because of the natural limits of the world. I mean, you're just you're living a dream. You're deluding yourself if you think that that can continue on. Um, no, I don't think you know. Which is why I was talking about the broader social perspective because, you know, I I don't know why paragliding or anything else would be inconsistent with permaculture. Um, if anything, getting outside and enjoying the great outdoors, you know, connecting with nature in whatever way you know, you can is actually as a, as a strengthening thing there. Um, in terms of population, are we incompatible? Is it, you know, geez, this population question comes up a lot. Um, interestingly, I think it's come up a bit less in the last year or so, but, but certainly for a long time, it was a big thing. I always get, um, I always try to say population is the wrong question to ask. The black and white of it, is does having too many people create a problem for the planet? Yes, because of the way we behave. When you ask the question, if everybody in the world, you know, snapped your fingers, waved your magic wand, and everybody in the world was acting in a way that was 
sustainable. So they were, you know, really good permaculture practitioners, everybody. Could the world support that population? Well, we don't know, but possibly. I mean, in terms of biophysical limits, when we start looking at the science around, well, you know, what, what are the limits that we're exceeding? In what ways are we exceeding? Them? Like, what is the actual damage that, that we're causing and how is it being caused? Most of those things you would not expect to be a result of, of behaving in a sort of a permaculture-inspired way. So you could make the argument, yeah, we, we could still support this many people. In fact, I, I heard Jeff Lawton saying, once, you know, we, we might need this many people mm. to solve it, to turn it around. You know, again, it's point, but what I like about that point, whether that's true or not, it's not really important. What's important is that it, it highlights the fact that it's how we behave that matters. It's not really how many of us there are. Um, would it be easier if there were fewer, fewer of us? Yes, because there'll be fewer people behaving badly. Um, and that's really the, the crux of it, in, in, in my opinion. Um, so, so in other words, trying to focus on population by saying, well, what we need to do is just make sure there's less people. That leads you down a very, very tricky path because, A, it, that, that's the argument that tends to be put forward by extreme, you know, right-wingers and people who are, you know, talking about some very dangerous and ugly uh, things. Hmm, the, interesting. The, the other thing, when you start talking about population control, you know, because it's never them, is it? They never want to control people that are like them. They tend to always want to point the finger and say, well, it's, we're not the problem. It's actually, it's, it's usually someone with a different skin color somewhere else in the world who, who's making the problem, uh-huh. you know, and it's, which is just, you know, it's an awful place to start. I, it's funny. I've just experienced that argument on the left more that like, oh, okay. the, well, it's like the woke community who's like, oh, we just need to like not reproduce. <laughs> okay. Well, this is the next point I was going to make. <laughs> when you look at this, the actual numbers, the, the, the population statistics, the population growth rate, so births, peaked in, I think, 1962. It's actually been declining ever since, mm. particularly in the developed world, but actually even globally, birth mm-hmm. rates have been dropping. So it's not the fact that people are having too many children. What's happened is that there's been a massive decrease in the death rate. So if you were a pop, uh, politician and you wanted to campaign on population control, what you actually need to do is you need to be complaining about the fact that people are living longer and better health. So you've got to be anti-sanitation, anti-healthcare. You know, I mean, that's what you're talking about, right? It's, and this is the thing, people don't... Re- Jane Ward for president! Yes. <laughs> and that's a ridiculous... No one's going to run on that platform because it's ridiculous. You know, It's a bold move, man. It's a bold yeah. move. I'm so, so proud of you. <laughs> so let's not even go there right now because that's not really something that we can do anything about. The, the only positive thing we can do, and I think some people are doing this, is we address the um, opportunities that are available spe- specifically for women in developing countries, giving them access to education, proper you know, birth control, which I know in some countries you know, that can be controversial. But at the end of the day, women having choices and having education and equal access to these things, I think is a good thing, no matter where you stand. So, you know, that's something you can actually do. And that's something that's positive. So aside from that, if you ask me, the whole population angle is like, it's a dead end. right? Okay. And can I just, yeah, I I just want to add something to this. That's both anecdotal and I think um, societal that I've noticed. I'll just, speak to my own duress, my own mental and spiritual duress. There is a part of me that knows 
my quality uh, as a father and yearns to have offspring and also battles with a deep intellectual part of myself that thinks that that is bad for the planet or that that is selfish or, you know, like there's just, there's just this kind of nebulous uncertainty that I have. And, and this is like divide, this is apart from just the general fear of, oh my God, do I want to bring a child into this world? Which I think people have been having for millennia. Every generation. Yeah. Right. Like every generation is like, oh my God, like my life is like totally imperfect. Do we want to reproduce this? Um, But there is this like, there is, and I I feel like what I'm chipping away at is there is an anti-humanism that I have noticed in the climate discussion. And I I want you to ax it. Please ax it for me. There are two points here. Park the anti-humanist thing for a second because I I do want to talk about that. The first point is, should I have it? Should I bring a child into this world? Mm -hmm. I'm not here telling anybody what they should do reproductively. That's their choice. 110%. My opinion on it, however, is if you care about the planet and you care about the natural world, and trying to do something good. The fact you're even concerned about that means you probably should have a child if you want to, because it's it's your kind of people that we need, <laughs> to be honest. You know, um, it's a, we, need that, more, we need more people like that. Yeah. <laughs> what we don't need is more, is more people who are just wanting to go around and trash the place no matter what and don't care and who are anti-humanist. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Frankly. And that's a, that's a point that I've gotten from another philosopher that, I have been influenced by in the past, but more uh, from uh, as opposed to a pro planet, it's almost like a pro philosophy. Like if you are intellectual enough and want to have civil discourse and that kind of thing, then obviously we need that kind of people. But I would love to hear your, your anti anti human shtick. Please ask that for me. This this can get to a very, this can get wildly off track, but I'll try and keep it (laughs) brief and relevant. Um, I, I, a little, a few years ago, I was doing some writing and was trying to get to the bottom of, I suppose several things, but one of which, why are we in this mess? Right. And it kept asking why, and it just kept going deeper and deeper and deeper. You know, why do we have, you know, this sort of economy, why, why, you know, why do people behave like this? Why does it, you know, and trying to sort of get to some of these bottom, uh, these lower drivers, you know, for this stuff. And to cut a long story short, one of the key things that I got to, which I think is relevant and holds true, is that at the base assumption of our economy, our, our economic system and the philosophy and ideology that goes along with that specifically is this idea that humans are innately selfish and are motivated by self-interest right and it is very clearly the basis for it's the economic rationale you know we are designing we're supposed to maximize our utility and blah 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 and 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 look after our own self-interest and that's the basis for having this entire economic system which is based on competition on scarcity, right? 
competition for scarce resources. But that assumption is, I believe, false. And I also believe that there's pretty good evidence for that, not just anecdotally, although that's plenty of that, but actually even scientifically, lots of interesting studies which disprove this basic assumption that people are inherently selfish. Because that's where it comes from, I think. It, this idea that people are inherently selfish is the justification for a lot of negative things. There's, it, it essentially props up this idea of, you know, we have to do X, Y, and Z. You have to hold on to this. You have to protect this. You have to, you know, we have to do all of these things because if we don't, chaos will happen, people will be bad. As someone who, who, who describes himself as an anarchist, I think you recognize this as, you know, being that the fundamental idea there really is not that people can be trusted. People can actually be good. People are generally good unless you put them in such a situation as that you essentially force them or, or brutalize them over a long period of time to behave badly and that it's actually not um, the dominant part of our nature. Everyone is capable of anything. But the question is, well, what are the conditions that are going to bring that out? Um, but to automatically assume that everybody is given half a chance going to be, uh, you know, violent or uh, selfish or, you know, whatever it is, I think is a, is a mistake. I think it's a false assumption that's not actually backed up by much. And and I think you, you would probably know yourself, you know, if you, when you travel around the world and when you... You, you go to some places where people are, you know, as poor poorer than you thought poor could be and you find the most amazing generosity and these are people who have, you know, by Western standards, less than nothing and they are willing to give and give and not ask for nothing in return, you know. Yeah, um, I, think, I think what you're pointing at, I, it makes me think of, it's like a, it's a, it's a weaponized belief that is holding up a false premise of what human nature really is. And I see that all the way from parenting of like, this is why I have to spank you right now. Like your human nature is flawed and I'm going to have to like physically violently intervene to keep you from doing this. And this escalates all the way to the noble lie of governance of like, people are bad. We have to use violence to control our societies. Mm. Yeah. There must be the threat of punishment or else people won't behave. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I'm also, I've been, you know, Daniel Schmachtenberger has been kind of proposing this notion that human nature might not actually be as widespread as we make it out to be, that uh, human nature can be more diverse, as well as our own evolution in competitive dynamics has selected for a nature of certain humans over um, another set, say, hypothetically, there was a bunch of hippie Neanderthals who were very one love and very peaceful that got clubbed by the more Machiavellian uh, <laughs> violent ones. <laughs> and thus we, well, we, uh, you know, I think what I'm what I'm getting at is I think that the idea of human nature is something that people weaponize, especially in a yeah. conversation about political ideology, especially in regards to anarchy. My point being that you know you can't 
you know, from a principled standpoint, you can't use violence to coerce people into doing anything. And the common argument is, but human nature, but human nature, but human nature. And I think, you know, one of the things that um, most people who talk about human nature who bring it in to sort of, yeah, sharpen their argument, usually haven't studied it. There was a really interesting, um, well, there's an interesting vein of, of study in science about the evolution of cooperation. And the one thing that that's obviously clear to anyone who, who studied it is that humans haven't become the dominant species on the planet because they are more badass than any other species. I mean, if you think about it, go back, I don't know, 50,000 years, maybe they don't have to go that far to be honest, go back 20,000, 10,000 years. And we are bipedal, fleshy, unarmored little creatures running around. Everything else in the forest or the jungle is, is much more terrifying than we are. We have, you know, we've got no protection. Everything has got much sharper claws, much sharper teeth. It's bigger. It's faster. It's venomous. I mean, you know, the world was a terrifying place from that perspective. So how did we, man, we got big brains. Yeah. But I mean, you know, you're not, it's not like you're going to sort of negotiate your way out of an encounter with a <laughs> giant aurochs or a saber toothed tiger, you know, it's not brawn, it's cooperation. That's what got us here. And this is the one thing that everyone seems to conveniently forget when they're talking about human nature and survival of the fittest and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's the fact that we are cooperative creatures. It's actually through cooperation that we managed to get this far. The fact that we then invented an economic system as a way to sort of organize the way we do things, we invented it. Let's not forget that. It didn't exist. It only exists in human minds. It didn't exist before us. It doesn't exist without us. You know, if Thanos wins, snaps his finger and people disappear, you know, if everyone on earth went, then so would economics, so would money. These are all just concepts that we carry around in our brains. Mm. So as soon as you start getting economics into it and we start saying, okay, this is how we're going to organize things, uh, that's when we start to introduce this idea, the false idea of certain of scarcity of certain things, right? Here's money. There's only so much of it. If you have some, that's money that I can't have. So now we're all in competition with each other as individuals, okay? And that immediately means we are no longer cooperating. We can cooperate a bit to a certain point, but at a certain point, we're going to have to choose between you or me. And that is the nature of the system that we have. Now, what can we do about it? There's a whole other conversation. But I think that that is the basis for why we kind of end up in these situations where we start saying, oh, human nature, this, human nature, that. This is the nature of... Well, it's not the nature. Have you ever actually looked at human nature without any of those constraints, without putting them in a system that pits them against each other? Because mm-hmm. I doubt you have. If you've only ever looked at them within that environment, it's like only it's saying everything we know about chimpanzees is looking at them in a zoo. Yeah, it's a, it's a very reductive way mm. to look at, at our nature. And I think that even, I, I guess one of the things that comes up for me here is if we choose to only listen to Darwin that says that humans have fought and clawed one another through the eons to arrive at where we are, it's a very reductive way to 
understand human nature and our own ability to cooperate. And as I was alluding to earlier, and I wrote this down, this politicized science, the concept of politicized science is one way we know where we go wrong in science, essentially, or how we use it. And what you mentioned was all of the politicians lately inside of the pandemic are just like, they say, no, just trust, just trust the scientists, just trust the experts, which I think is such a cherry pick and cop out way because we've known that, that, all kinds of different foods are bad for us. All kinds of life practices are bad for us. All kinds, like the injustices and the inequalities that exist long after we prove uh, their existence with science are just too many to list. So this reductive and politicized and uh, leveraging understanding of human nature is quite um, it kind of paints us as much smaller, much less capable than I think we really are. And I think that the, the one of the feelings that I get when I look into permaculture is uh, capability, that we are actually, that the dark apocalyptic times the cliff that we are careening towards is out of our control is actually not true that we actually can live in alignment with the earth. We can live in cooperation and relationship with one another. I think these technologies actually already exist and um, absolutely. How- I, I, we, it is absolutely true. Yes, we can co- you know, coexist we can live in a regenerative way with nature. Um, you know, we, we don't need any new technology. We don't need any new discoveries. We know everything we need to know. We have everything we, to do, you know, we need to do this properly. Mm-hmm. That isn't the problem. And I think maybe the sort of techno-futurist uh, ideology is always trying to tell us, well, you know, we will be able to fix this when we just get this new, latest, greatest invention. You know, some smart cookie in Silicon Valley is going to come up with the amazing tech that's going to fix all this. And I think there's a lot of people around the world who think that that's what's going to happen or, or hope that that's what's going to happen um, because it's easier, isn't it? It doesn't ask them. It doesn't ask anything of them. Um, and that's what we've kind of been accustomed to. But you know the the science i mean again i think you know you you you're going going back to this question of the science and politics it's always an uneasy they're uneasy bedfellows as we'd say um, <laughs> science is a process right you know it's not a position so science is a is a process of asking questions and trying to discover things and then ask better questions you you never can really prove anything with science you can only build up a evidence to the point where you can be pretty sure, but you can never be a hundred percent sure because, you know, it's a process. It's a process of asking questions. And um, 
I've got a lot of respect for people that dedicate their lives to ask, trying to ask good questions and, and build up research and try to really understand things deeply, the nuance of stuff. Um, but in, invariably, it's politics. When we're talking about things at a national scale, it's politics where it gets messy because politics isn't about what's best. It's not about what's right. It's not about, you know, what's fair. It's about this balance between what can be achieved, you know, how can how can things be made to happen and what's the price short-term versus long-term or mostly short-term because people don't tend to think long-term. But, you know, it, it's, it's an, there's an art in politics which has got very little, you know, it's informed hopefully by science, not always, of course, but hopefully. But science is just a starting point. It's not usually, it's just a starting point, except when there's a global pandemic, in which case they all realise we're not doctors, we're not epidemiologists, we don't know anything about this, so we're going to stand back and you know take some advice. But, of course, that doesn't happen when it's got to do with climate or land use or anything because there's strong economic interests and, you know, we are where we are. But, yeah, I, you know, it's, it is – I don't think that the science is – often the problem if you know what i mean yeah i agree um you're kind of alluding to something there of the the land use and the the intersection of the land use and the economy and i think that we are seeing unprecedented interaction right now between our land use and our economy as we have completely slammed on the brakes with our global economy what is the ecological effect that you're even imagining? Yes. Well, that's a good question. I'm not sure actually if in terms of agriculture anyway, primary production, you know, forestry, agriculture, et cetera, that there has been a dramatic impact. You don't think would, there has been? No, I don't. I, I think that a lot of that activity has continued, um, the vast majority at least. Um, where we are seeing massive impact is mostly around things like transport, um, some industry. Uh, in fact, I just saw a presentation an hour ago by um, a, um, a very good climate scientist, and he was just talking about New Zealand. Uh, in this particular instance, um, but there, for example, I think I'm oh, actually maybe he was talking. No, sorry, he was he was talking globally actually. When the, there, so he said I think there was something like a five percent contraction of emissions uh, globally, and that the vast majority of that was from um, transport because people are not moving around, right? So that's yeah. that's the primary thing. So it, you know that's having amazing um, effects on air pollution uh, so those levels have been dropping so we've got much cleaner air which is great uh, in a lot of places particularly noticeable in china especially around beijing and you know very very high density areas but in terms of agriculture i mean certainly in most countries it's considered an essential service so it's not being stopped people are still going to eat um the, the the impact that i'm seeing most of all, I think like everyone's seen, has, has been this kind of panic buying and what that's revealing about the fragility of our food system. And I think this is a really important point because even before all of this, you know, myself and lots of other people have been pointing out that the way that we use land, particularly to grow food, has been so destructive over the last 70 odd years. 
that we are heading for a crash. I mean, there is no other, it's not, we might be heading for a crash. It's only, it's a matter of when, not if, because there is no other option. If you keep doing things the way we're doing them now, it's not going to just sort of magically turn itself around. It's not an asteroid that may or may not hit the earth. And, you know, if it doesn't hit the earth, it's a near miss and okay, we were slightly wrong. It, it, it just grazed us. We're fine. It's, it's actually, it's, you know, this is going off a cliff and unless we, we change direction, it's inevitably going to go off a cliff. So that's, that's the problem. And one of the major impacts of that, of course, is on food systems. You know, so it's not all just going to completely tank at once. You're going to find that as certain environments um, undergo extreme weather events, uh, you know, certain environments become more brittle. Uh, Australia is a good example of, you know, as, as droughts get longer, uh, harsher, um, then they start mixing with flooding events and then you start getting massive bushfires again. You know, all it takes is just bad timing and the whole thing starts to unravel. And that's true at a global sense as well. You know, as many people who look at this stuff um, have been pointing out, we are heading towards a future of uh, very likely um, global breadbasket failures, what they call multiple breadbasket failures, they call it. So where you have major regions which produce a large part of the world's basic food supplies, you know, your rice, your wheat, your corn, et cetera. Um, all it takes is for one or two to fail at the same time and the whole thing starts to fall apart. Um, and the likelihood of that happening is increasing a lot. That's at a global scale. That has big economic impacts, but it has a lot of impacts, as you can imagine, in this current situation about who can get food, who can access it. Um, but even on a more national, sort of smaller scale, you know, we can see how fragile the food system is. Most of it is run on what they call this just-in-time um, logistical approach so that no one is carrying too much stockpile at any one time. It makes it more efficient, it's cheaper, there's less risk, et cetera. So that's great as long as everything runs perfectly. But the problem is, is it's such an interconnected and such a big system that to get everything running perfectly um, is very difficult. And all it takes is unforeseen uh, events like a global pandemic or a breadbasket failure for the whole thing to start to unravel very fast. But the important thing here is that what all the scientists are telling us that work in this area is that this is what was going to happen. So it's not unexpected. We, we know the kinds of things are going to happen. We can't predict exactly when, but we know they're coming and we're not really doing very much about it yet to ensure that there's resilience. So if you want another good reason to get into permaculture, there's one for you. Um, increasing your... You won't starve. <laughs> yeah, well, it's an incentive if you need one. You know, but it's... It, and again, it's not just about you though, of course. You know, permaculture is about community as well. So having good networks, building genuine relationships with the people that are around you. Um, and that's part of resilience as well, you know, and part of food resilience, part of social resilience. Um, you know, the transition town movement's a good one. You know, there's all kinds of initiatives that are all around the place. But, but people kind of, I guess, acknowledging that these things are important, recognizing that we live in a real world, by which I mean one that's a natural real world where these things can happen and are going to keep happening and they're going to get worse. Um, we need to think very uh, in a very real way about our own resilience at a family level, at a community level, and then, of course, at a national level. And permaculture can really help us do that. Give me just a quick 
or as long as you want, really, um, view of how permaculture helps us build resilience in our food supply, in our in all of these things, particularly in the keeping my food on my table. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, at a personal level, if you have access to land, you don't need to own it, um, as several people have, have demonstrated really well. Um, but if you do, great. Um, grow, grow more food. Grow as much as you sort of can yourself and this can be really powerful um not necessarily just because it may cut down your grocery bill which it can but but also because again this connection you know there's something really amazing about growing your own food i mean i can remember the first time i ate a tomato that i'd grown myself um nothing had ever tasted so good and i Mm -hmm. guess i kind of got hooked on it um so so there's that's really important that could, that in fact that experience can be really an amazing gift to communities, particularly communities that are suffering. And this is uh, particularly true, I think, in the developed world. You know, you, you have a lot of places. It's so empowering. Industries moved out. Yeah, well, it is exactly right. You know, it can be very therapeutic, very empowering, um, and again, yeah, reconnecting people and landscape together. But yes, you grow your own food. You can help others grow their own food. You can together grow food you can empower other people to grow food you know i i've seen all kinds of amazing combinations of that over the years i mean one of the schemes that i didn't see but read about that i thought was really cool was in the uk they had a sort of a village um community um farm right so so the people involved could go down and help out but they employed somebody they pulled their money and they employed someone to manage that and everyone got a share of the pig or the cow or whatever you know and the vegetables and everything that was grown on that farm that they supported directly it was a bit like a csa but it was actually much more direct it was it was was, they knew you know that jim was the guy who was doing it they helped pay jim they all pulled their money together and that meant that they could get food um you know these types of things are really powerful and you know Permaculture definitely, you know, integrates with all of that. And then, of course, at a larger scale, you know, the principles of permaculture and designing food-producing landscapes at, at the broadacre, the farm scale, is also really powerful. You know, it's about integrating perennial crops, woody crops, you know, tree crops, et cetera, uh, integrating that with animal production in a way that's mutually beneficial so that you have um, – you're mimicking natural ecosystems so you don't need inputs – um, that are you know fossil fuel based inputs you can provide all your pest uh, control naturally through supporting insects and birds and etc cetera, etc cetera. you know these kinds of systems are amazing and uh, if you ask me they are kind of the the answer because we need one we, we need to know you know without without a permanent agriculture there can be no permanent mm. civilization that's that's the bottom line and this is the thing that I guess is probably my main message. That's so and painfully obvious. <laughs> it is, isn't oh, it? But that's it's so funny. painfully obvious. Nobody talks about it. Literally nobody talks about it. Everyone's talking about economic stimulus and what about oh this and how can we be more circular and how it's not there is no second place prize in this. We don't get a sort of a, a happy stamp if we just do it better. Like it's a, if it's a bit greener, that's lovely, but it's not enough. It, either we, we manage to live within planetary boundaries without destroying living ecosystems upon which we depend. Either we do that or we don't. And if we don't, it's very bad. And this is the point, right? This is what it all comes down to. So, and this is actually not even to do with climate. I mean, it is and it isn't. Because the point is, even if the climate was fantastic, 
we would still need to do this anyway. We still need to work out how to feed ourselves to exist forever or else there's an end date. If it's not forever, there's an end date. We might not know when it is, but it exists. So we have to work out how we can do this forever. And that's the point. And that's what I think permaculture really helps teach us. Among other things, there's other methodologies as well, which all kind of fit together in a nice way. But permaculture is an important part of that. Permanent agriculture. Permanent agriculture. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's there in the name, you know, it's a a mixture of permanent and agriculture. Oh my God. It's so off. It's so obvious. And I think right now, Shane, I think for the first time in my life, for the first time in so many of our soft and luxurious lives, we are beginning to see the obvious reality if your head is not in the very comfortable sand that civilization is not guaranteed civilizations have come and gone the romans are gone the byzantines are gone the aztecs the incas the mayans they're all gone Even they in have, north america there was the um was it, was it a civilization i think it was a, a place called cahokia I was reading about um, that existed. Existed. Years ago. Existed, but they're gone. Yeah, same thing. Yeah. Exactly. And now we're seeing uh, the fragility in so many of our systems from political to uh, our medical systems, to our systems of governance, to our systems of relationship. And now what I actually think is the scariest is our system of agriculture. I don't think that people quite understand the seriousness of what people do when food stops showing up to our grocery stores. Um, That is not a world I want to live in. No, it makes you realize how dependent you are. Yeah. And this is something that I actually, I, I, that, bolted through my mind like lightning as you went on that beautiful rant was that I think that people are generally, generally incredibly disempowered right now. Like they feel like humiliated at their level of, of dependency on systems that they don't actually like. And I have felt it in myself, even in the last month, as we've gone through all of this, there's times where I feel empowered to be an agent of change and to foster relationships and conversations with people who inspire me and who have wisdom and knowledge and experience that I don't. And then as I lean back into the dark realities of historical governance and violence, I just feel just (laughs) scared and disempowered. You know, uh, one of the things that uh, is in, I can't remember which permaculture book, it might be permaculture one or two, um, is the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Yeah. And I I feel that very strongly. I agree with that. I, th- I think, and in this, in this particular crisis, it's extremely apparent how fragile the system is, how dependent upon it we are but then also how interconnected we are and there's a downside and an upside to that at the moment the interconnectedness is not entirely healthy but it could be so i think that's really important and so i guess on that 
I want to read out to you a Bill Mollison quote, which many permaculturists will be familiar with, but I keep coming back to it because I think he really nails it. The greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production. Even if on a small scale in our own gardens, if only 10% of us do this, there is enough for everyone. Hence, the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system they attack and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter. Shane, that hits me in the head way too hard right now. I have need coffee for that kind of quote, dude. That is way too much. Give it to me again, though. Give it to me again. I need it from the top. (laughs) Okay. The greatest change we need to make is from consumption to production, even if on a small scale in our own gardens. If only 10% of us do this, there is enough for everyone. Hence the futility of revolutionaries who have no gardens, who depend on the very system they attack and who produce words and bullets, not food and shelter. Mm. Fuck, that's incredible. And honestly, man, I feel like a broken record right now because I have been interviewing innovators and all these people and this thread that comes back is just community and relationship to the people that we're around. It's like knowing your neighbors, it's building relationships, it's community building, it's community building, it's community building, it's community building. And it's so funny how my own, I just thought the community building was for people who didn't have shit going on. Like I have always just had so much shit going on in my life, like community building. No, I don't have time for that. I have my own communities. Like they're out there. We're like, we're meeting at, pine mountain to launch our paragliders and it's like but now it's just like it's becoming so painfully obvious that and like the quote says the revolutionaries that make bullets and words not food and shelter wow our most Mm -hmm. basic needs are how we become self-reliant how we become more resilient i um when i became a parent um, I'd hear the, the, the expression, it takes a village to raise a child. And as someone who was moving country a lot with young children, I felt that all the time. I was always like, wow, I can see why they say that because it does. It's hard when you're by yourselves and you're in a new country and you, you know, don't have support networks and stuff. But since then, I have been thinking about that in a new way. And when people say it takes a village, I actually think to myself, it's not just about kids. I think in in a lot of ways we we need a village of some kind you know for our food for our social needs for our resilience in a lot of different ways and and I think there's a reason why village has kind of been the most common unit of social organization throughout history as far as we know I think there's a reason for that um and I don't have a lot of answers about it but I I do keep coming back to this idea. Yeah. I I recently had a conversation with this guy, Howard Rheingold, and we were talking about the, the differences between virtual community and geographic community, the people that are right in front of us, because it's, especially I'm 31, man. Like I've grown up with being primed 
for what has happened in the last month where like we've just like flipped the switch and we're like everyone's digital dance party we're like oh this is normal this is like somehow huh we can like we can really this isn't too foreign for us we can jump right into this but it's like hey fred myers is out of tomatoes and they're not gonna have them back for the next unforeseeable future you're like that yeah. is not a dance party that I can jump right into. <laughs> exactly. So suddenly, you know, there's no rice. So like, what do you mean there's no rice? I mean, you, you cannot buy rice. But what if I go to another store? No, there's literally no rice. Amazon, you, dude. You cannot buy. You know, I'm just, but I'm just highlighting an example, Seriously? right? At a certain yeah. point, we're running into, I guess, real limits to things. People mm-hmm. for the first time in their lives have kind of twigged that, there, there might be actual real limits. That doesn't matter exactly, you know, what you think about it or you don't actually have the options you think you do that you are actually, this is all based on something real. I mean, you know, most children in big cities think food comes from a store, mm-hmm. which is insane, of course. I mean, you understand exactly why they think it, but how long has, you know, the, I mean, the fact that we can get that divorced from the reality of yeah, the problem is not the children that think that the food comes from the no, store. No, it's the adults. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the problem's not the children. They're the symptom. But they're, they're, revealing, they're holding up a mirror to us to show us how abstracted we've become from the real world. And I guess this is the, the thought which is always going through my head, you know, when I'm having, even if I'm just sitting in a, in a meeting or a gathering of people talking about solutions or, you know, and I, I, I try in my work to communicate outside of the, the, uh, you know, not preaching to the choir as it were, try and communicate more widely than in just environmental circles. You know, so I try to get in, into conversations with people that are either in government or business or, you know, I'm always interested to hear how they think about it. And, and when people are trying to propose solutions, in fact, even, even sort of environmental people who, who are trying to talk about what we need to do, in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, is this, is this just better? Like, are we, are just, are we just trying to be, less bad or are we actually trying to build and make something which will actually work in ecological limits? Do you know what I mean? Like whether we're talking, if we're talking about agriculture, like we're talking about something that's actually sustainable, is it permanent or not? It's not enough that it's just a bit less bad. It actually has to work forever. And, and, and I, and so I sometimes I'm struck by the fact that people just get caught in thinking in in a particular way of, you know, they're not recognizing, they're just simply not recognizing the context we find ourselves in, which is we are dependent upon the living world. Like really, (laughs) you know, in a a very real way and we forget it. We we become very abstracted. We get caught up in our economics. We get caught up in, in all the things that we've made up to try and run our world, but we forget that it's all ultimately dependent upon natural things like water and food. You know, we can live, what is it, three minutes roughly without oxygen, three days without water, three weeks without food. Um, and for some reason, we just take all of those things for granted but they are all real and they're all dependent upon functioning ecosystems. All the rest of the stuff that we concern ourselves with isn't. And it could all go away tomorrow. The internet, economies, cars, cities, you know, we could still survive. We could, 
do something different. We could rebuild. We could, you know, we'd have choices, but we could still survive as long as we had water, air, food, shelter. Mm. But for some reason, we have made those things less important than these invented abstract things that, that we made up, right? So it's like, oh, we can't say the environment's too expensive. Well, well, hang on, but who determines the cost? That's, we just made that up. It's, it's just, it's a, it's, we wrote something down on a bit of paper and that was determined what something cost. It was a napkin. Yeah, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? I mean, obviously I'm massively oversimplifying, but it's to illustrate a point. No, seriously. It's that, you know, the, 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 the relative importance of things, the relative cost of things is all entirely kind of arbitrary. To, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's conceptual at a certain point. At the end of the day, you know, you walk out of that city into the forest for a week and all that stuff, you know, what you realize what actually your, your survival depends upon in real, in a very real way, you know? Um, anyway, so, so that to me is, is always in my mind is, is, is this kind of weird abstraction that we have of what's real and what's not, I think. And, and it's not helpful a lot when we're trying to do what's needed to have a permanent civilization and a permanent agriculture is that it gets in the way if we're not able to be clear about what is really propping it up and what's not, you know? Wow. Dude, you have a way of understanding psychology as well as your grasp with English is so like accessible and cutting. Like you are a sharp blade. You are not eat, you're not a hippie permaculturalist, nor are you some stuffy climate scientist. Man, you've really fucking got it. And this conversation has been incredibly enlightening for me. I know it's going to be so helpful for other people. I feel empowered to be the next zucchini savior, the next zucchini revolutionary. I'm going to keep making these fucking planter boxes. You can't stop me. I'm going to have food coming out of my ears. <laughs> I hope so. But I dude, so. hey, I really appreciate you coming on. Like, I, seriously, this has been so awesome. But our work is not done here. I... I know that my girlfriend is going to be so mad that we didn't get to earth and structures. We didn't get to earth ships. We didn't get to stuffing our plastic bottles in the walls of our houses. I, there's so much more that like permaculture specific stuff that I really want to kind of dive deep on. And so I would love to do this again, man. Absolutely, man. That's been great. Thanks very much for for your time, Ari. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you, Shane. See you later, man. Have a good day. You too. Bye. Okay. You guys, I know you love that. Like, there's just some stuff in the second half of that that are just mind bombs, especially that quote that he read to me. I have just been ruminating on that. Whew. Revolution, zucchini revolutionaries, man. That's so, so, so true. I have been, for so long, I've been weary of climate activists who don't make changes in their own lives that so obviously benefit what they're claiming to be so passionate about. So, um, wow. Yeah. Thanks so much, Shane. That was fucking rad. So if you guys like this podcast, if you think that these are the kind of conversations we need to be having right now as a collective then do your part, share it, subscribe, leave a review and consider donating paypal.me slash airy in the air. Really appreciate that. You guys stay healthy, stay sane, stay safe. I've got an amazing interview coming up with Dr. Zach Stein. Education in a time between worlds. I've been 
fucking noodling on this one for a long time. It's coming your way. I'm working hard to keep these conversations coming your way. So thanks for supporting. Thanks for listening. Keep it going, folks. We're all in this together. Love you. Peace. But I want to talk to you to pull you aside. I want to ask you to come with me tonight. I want to stay.